What, too obvious? Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about patriotism and nationalism, and American patriotism and nationalism specifically. So, why not? Let's listen to the Stars and Stripes Forever March by John Philip Sousa, because subtlety is just not going to be on the table today. Um, it's important to notice that, you know, Sousa may be the most recognizable American composer for American band music in this particular, like, super patriotic idiom. Um, but it's also worth noting that this isn't just America. Like, America... Alright, calm down. Good grief, Mr. Sousa. Alright, sorry about that. Everyone's feeling super patriotic. Everyone's super feeling super-nationalistic at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. This is all over the place. As we talked about, it's nationalism that very much brings about World War I. It'll be nationalism again that brings about World War II. And while there's no harm in a little big band music and a little excitement about your country, we should definitely recognize that there is a distinction between excitement about your country and general discontent with the existence of others. Alright, so the last lecture went very long. Uh, sorry about that. And as a consequence, we'll try and keep this one fairly short. Happily, The Devil and Daniel Webster is pretty straightforward as readings in our class go, and hopefully you enjoyed it. Like, it's quick, and it's fairly easy to read, and it's straightforward and not quite so much duplicitous you know, crazy backtalk or anything. Um, no levels or complications. Um, I mean, there are levels. There are always levels. But at the very least, the author is not trying to disguise what he's doing. In fact, all of his efforts are being devoted to just emphasize what he's saying uh, very straightforwardly. Um, so enough preface. Let's just dive into Benet's The Devil and Daniel Webster. Um, so obviously, like... There are allusions to the devil and Tom Walker all over the place here. Uh, Benet himself has said that, like, this is obviously his inspiration. It was, you know, very much in the back of his mind as he was writing this, and he very much is sort of, like, updating it for his own time. Um, so that's kind of our clear point of reference here, and we should keep that in mind. Like, as much as this is in the greater tradition of the Faust story, this is definitely even more directly in the, you know, more American legend tradition that Irving and Hawthorne were bringing about through America, through American romanticism, and which Benet is sort of resurrecting here for his own purposes. Um, but notice the way that it changes. No, notice how Benet changes the emphases and what he's interested in as opposed to what Irving was interested in interested in a hundred years ago. Um, notice too that Benet is working out of time here. Uh, when Irving writes, Irving is also writing out of time. Like he's writing about the 18th century. He is writing about, you know, the, the colonial era and the time shortly thereafter. Um, but Benet is sort of locating his story in the 19th century when Irving was alive. Um, but notice, too, that this is a hundred years afterwards. Like, Benet is not writing about his own time. He's writing about the 1820s, the 1830s. Um, he is writing about a world that he isn't terribly familiar with. But also notice that his style emphasizes this. It is meant to be dislocated in time. We, are, we start off with this as a story, as a legend, as a tall tale. Um, this is not meant to be a realistic story or a story that could have occurred like yesterday. This is meant to be located in the past and has the trappings of the past all around it, much like the Romantics would have liked to do anyway. Um, so notice even the first line. It's a story they tell in the border country where Massachusetts joins Vermont and New Hampshire. Um, Notice that even with this very first line, he's locating this as a story, as something that has been told over and over again, as something probably fictional, um, as a legend that has been exaggerated over time. Um, Benet is in, like very deliberately emphasizing the the unreality of this situation, the storyness of it. Um, in a way that most of our writers haven't when you think about it. Like, as much as 
you know, the Romantics were very interested in, in, you know, storytelling as storytelling and sort of the trappings, and Irving himself keeps this in mind, like the, the Devil and Tom Walker is itself one of these sorts of stories that has been told for a long time. And you'll remember we talked about how, like, some of the details are fuzzy and there's multiple different accounts of certain things, like whatever happened to his wife. Um, those stories, the story-ness of the Devil and Tom Walker is on display as well. Um, and Benet echoes this, though most of our writers kind of haven't done that. They've sort of let their stories exist in their own time. Um, but notice, too, that where Tom Walker is sort of using his storiness to let the story be more mysterious, to, to sort of, you know, open up questions about what possibly could have happened to the characters, in... The case of the devil and Daniel Webster, Benet is using the storiness to emphasize the legendary qualities. Um, Daniel Webster especially is a character here that is larger than life. Like he was in fact a historical figure. Daniel Webster was an important lawyer and an important senator back in the 19th century, an ardent abolitionist and an ardent, you know, uh, proponent of the Union. Um, he was a Northerner who hated the South in its own right, Like, but most, most of all he wanted to, quote, preserve the Union, as we see here. Um, and notice that he emphasizes this right from, right from the beginning. Yes, Daniel Webster's dead, or at least they buried him, but every time there's a thunderstorm around Marshfield, they say you can hear his rolling voice in the hollows of the sky, and they say that if you go to his grave and speak loud and clear, Daniel Webster! Daniel Webster! The ground will begin to shiver and the trees begin to shake, and after a while you'll hear a deep voice saying, Neighbor, how stands the Union? Then you better answer the Union stands as she stood, rock-bottomed and copper-sheathed, one and indivisible, or he's liable to rear right out of the ground. At least that's what I was told when I was a youngster. Notice what he's emphasizing here. Um, Daniel Webster's dead, or at least they buried him, he says. It sort of lends itself to this mysteriousness. Is Daniel Webster really dead? The legends seem to suggest that he's not. And every time you hear that thunderstorm, you can go to his grave and he'll say, how stands the Union? As though he's still fighting for this cause, even a hundred years after his death. Um, and of course, the last line of the paragraph, that's what I was told when I was a youngster. Again, there's this distance between the author and the narrator and the narrator and the story. Um, this is what he was told as a youngster. It may be true, it may not be true, he doesn't know. It's the story that he wants to tell. But he goes on, exaggerating about Daniel Webster even more. You see, for a while he was the biggest man in the country. He never got to be president, but he was the biggest man. There were thousands that trusted in him right next to God Almighty, and they told stories about him and all the things that belonged to him that were like the stories of patriarchs and such. They said when he stood up to speak, stars and stripes came right out in the sky, and once he spoke against a river and made it sink into the ground. They said when he walked the woods with his fishing rod, kill all, the trout would jump out of the streams right into his pockets for they knew it was no use putting up a fight against him and when he argued a case he could turn on the harps of the blessed and the shaking of the earth underground that was the kind of man he was and his big farm up at marshfield was suitable to him the chickens he raised were all white meat down through the drumsticks the cows were tended like children and the big ram he called goliath had horns with a curl like a morning glory vine and could butt through an iron door Notice again all of the exaggerations here, and on all levels. Like, Daniel Webster is apparently such an incredible orator that when he speaks, the stars and stripes shoot out of the sky. Um, he can convince a river to sink into the ground. He is so good at fishing that the trout just jump into his pockets rather than having to wrestle with him. The chickens he raises, he raises are so great that they're white meat all the way down, and his ram is so powerful that it can butt through an iron door. Um... This is the picture of Daniel Webster we're getting. He is, yes, a historical figure, but he's a historical figure inflated to this legendary size. He is the greatest man, he says, even greater than the president. Um, Daniel Webster is this figure of legend. And notice, he is just a man. Like, again, this is a historical figure. Um, but... Benet is very much emphasizing these greater-than-human qualities, as, lo as though he is a superhero in his own right, as though all of these things that he does are just because of how awesome he is as a person. 
Um, and notice that there's an interesting, like this is new in our class. As much as we have seen supernatural forces bumming around the edges of a, of a lot of the things that we've talked about, like the devil and his demons are all frequently hanging around the periphery of our stories, it's pretty rare that we get a human being who is bigger than he ought to be rather than smaller. Um, note, like, all those Faust stories we read all the way back to Marlowe, Faust is never, you know, superhuman. He is often portrayed as though he's very smart, um, you'll remember Goethe, there's that whole thing in there about how, you know, like, he apparently is being uh, well-respected by the town because they all think they, that he saved them from a plague. Marlowe writes about this, too, and that Faust is correct to sort of indulge in that praise. He's a really smart guy. He did, in fact, save whole towns from the plague. But as great as he is, when the devil shows up, he is still humbled. Um, like, all we need is for Mephistopheles to come about, and now it's, you know, Faust's magical powers are completely explained. They exist entirely outside of him. Likewise, all the men and women we've been running into, even in Don Giovanni or the Don Juan stories, as, you know, much as it is a huge exaggeration every time somebody says, you know, Don Juan slept with hundreds of women, like thousands of women, 600 in Spain and 500 in Italy, and, you know, you get those lists, and yeah, it's a huge exaggeration, and even Byron comments on how he's achieved this sort of legendary status. But remember, he'd never existed. Like, Faust, the person once upon a time was a historical figure with sort of supernatural qualities attracted to him but over and over the artists tend to emphasize that he is the victim of his powers um just as don juan is the victim of his appetites you know the only one who gives don juan greater than human status is shaw and we talked about how problematic shaw is um here we see something similar to what Shaw is doing, this sort of elevation of a human being to this superhuman status. Um, we see Daniel Webster, a historical figure, turned into a superhero, turned into the greatest orator who ever lived, where stars and stripes shoot out of the sky and trout jump into his pockets. That's our character here. Notice, too, that he's also not the one taken in by the devil. That particular dishonor goes to Jabez Stone. And notice by contrast the way that Benet describes Stone. There was a man named Jabez Stone, lived at Cross Corners, New Hampshire. He wasn't a bad man to start with, but he was an unlucky man. If he planted corn, he got borers. If he planted potatoes, he got blight. He had good enough land, but it didn't prosper him. He had a decent wife and children, but the more children he had, the less there was to feed them. If stones cropped up in his neighbor's field, boulders boiled up in his. If he had a horse with the spavens, he'd trade it for one with the staggers and give something extra. There's some folks bound to be like that, apparently. But one day, Jabez Stone got sick of the whole business. Notice that there is also an exaggeration here. Stone's unluckiness is just as exaggerated as, as Daniel Webster's awesomeness. Uh, but in this case, it makes Jabez Stone out to be unfortunate. That's the emphasis here. He's not especially great. He's not especially bad. He's not like Tom Walker, who was, you know, awful. Remember Tom Walker fighting with his wife and, you know, greedily like grabbing up the eggs because it's all that they had and you know walker is very quick to to agree to the devil's plan to make him into a money lender so he can take advantage of people and ruin them like tom walker was a terrible person he absolutely deserved what he got jabez stone does not that's what is emphasized here by benet jabez stone for all intents and purposes should not have sold himself to the devil he lacks Tom Walker's greed. He lacks Faust's ambition. All he wants is a fair shake, and he can't get it. He is routinely unlucky. And so he'd been plowing that morning, and he just broke the plowshare on a rock that he could have sworn what hadn't been there yesterday. And as he stood looking at the plowshare, the off horse began to cough, that ropey kind of cough that means sickness and horse doctors. There were two children down with the measles, his wife was ailing, and he had a whitlow on his thumb. It was about the last straw for Jabez Stone. I vow, he said, and he looked around him kind of desperate. I vow it's enough to make a man want to sell his soul to the devil, and I would too, for two cents. Notice, 
all of our characters who have gotten into deals with the devil so far, with zero exceptions, deserve it in some way. Both of our Fausts, Marlows, and Goethes, both are so ambitious that they start entreating darker powers. Both of them are at least interested in the prospect of having the devil work for them. They are reaching beyond their grasp, and so deserve their downfall in some sense. Tom Walker is absolutely a terrible person, and this is just an opportunity when the devil shows up to claim his soul. Um, Jabez Stone petitions the devil in a moment of weakness. And you get the sense that this was kind of the devil's doing all along, that all of his unluckiness was brought about because the devil was trying to get the better of him. But notice, too, what the text emphasizes about this. Um, he makes this rash vow, I vow that I would sell my soul to the devil for this awful situation. Um, and then he felt a kind of queerness come over him at having said what he'd said. Though naturally, being a New Hampshire man, he wouldn't take it back. Notice how the text emphasizes here. Like, this is just a rash vow. You know, you people say stuff like this all the time. Like, you say things like, God damn it, when something bad happens, but really you're not damning anyone. Like, it's just an expletive. It's, it's just exaggeration. Um, Jabez Stone had his moment of weakness. He said he'd sell his soul to the devil. He looks around. It seems like nobody cared. But notice that he doesn't take it back. Because he is a New Hampshire man. At the same time as Binet is emphasizing sort of the greatness of Daniel Webster and the, the unluckiness of Jabez Stone, we have this emphasis on the character of the New Hampshire man. Like, the common New Hampshire man. The, the thing that links Jabez Stone to Daniel Webster and to all of their countrymen. This sort of stubborn, bloody-mindedness. This, you know hard as the land and tough as nails and not willing to take back what they'd said, like this hyper-masculine sort of virtue. Um, and it's this that gets him in trouble at the end of the day. But notice that it is framed as a virtue. Yes, Jabez Stone was momentarily weak for, you know, shouting this exaggeration in his field on a bad day, but notice that the author compliments him for not taking it back, for sticking to his word. Notice that the, the emphasis here is that this man's honor is greater than his religious responsibilities. He makes himself vulnerable to the devil, but it is better to be vulnerable to the devil than to take back your word once you've said something, rash though it may be. His stubbornness is a virtue here. His humanity is a virtue here. Binet is emphasizing this. So naturally, the devil eventually shows up. Um, all the same, when it got to be evening, and as far as he could see, no notice had been taken, he felt relieved in his mind, for he was a religious man. But notice is always taken, sooner or later, just like the good book says. And sure enough, next day, about supper time, a soft-spoken, dark-dressed stranger drove up in a handsome buggy and asked for Jabez Stone. Well, Jabez told his family it was a lawyer, come to see him about a legacy, but he knew who it was. He didn't like the looks of the stranger, nor the way he smiled with his teeth. They were white teeth and plentiful. Some say they were filed to a point, but I won't, wouldn't vouch for that. And he didn't like it when the dog took one look at the stranger and ran away howling with his tail between his legs. But having passed his word, more or less, he stuck to it. And they went out behind the barn and made their bargain. Jabez Stone had to prick his finger to sign, and the stranger lent him a silver pin. The wound healed clean, but it left a little white scar. Notice, like Tom Walker, like Irving's story, Binet does not dwell on the specifics of the deal. We all know this story. We've all, you know, heard this tale before. We all know what the terms of the deal are. Um, notice instead the emphasis. This is the devil. You can tell there are all these signposts in the text. First, because we know that, you know, Jabez Stone has gone too far by saying this in his field when he thought he was alone and nobody was listening. We see that, like, there are rumors that his teeth were filed to points. We see the reaction of the dog freaking out and, like, barking at him and running away. Um, and, of course, we get the signing in blood detail. He had to prick his finger to sign, and it leaves a little white scar. This is the terms of the deal. 
like Faust, here we have Jabez Stone signing over his soul in, in return for good fortune. Um, it's closer to Tom Walker, naturally. Again, Tom Walker seeks prosperity with his deal as well, rather than, like, intelligence and power the way we usually see with Faust. Um, but the terms are all familiar. And immediately we see how this, you know, changes Jabez Stone's fortune. Um, after that, all of a sudden, things began to pick up and prosper for Jabez Stone. His cows got fat and his horses sleek. His crops were the envy of the neighborhood, and lightning might strike all over the valley, but it wouldn't strike his barn. Pretty soon, he was one of the prosperous people of the county. They asked him to stand for selectman, and he stood for it. There began to be talk of running him for state senate. All in all, you might say the Stone family was as happy and contented as cats in a dairy, and so they were, except for Jabez Stone. Notice immediately everything changes like here is jabez stone enjoying the benefits of his deal with the devil but notice also that there's no qualification here remember when tom walker makes his deal with the devil the whole point of the devil is to get tom walker to do his work for him like tom walker becomes prosperous but he becomes prosperous as a money lender as someone working in the devil's employ as someone you know destroying people's lives so they will become more vulnerable to the devil likewise remember that tom walker's profits don't ultimately come to anything like he has all this money but he doesn't do anything with it he just buys his big house and doesn't even bother to furnish it he buys his carriage and doesn't bother to feed his horses he's still a stingy jackass the same is not true of jabez stone here jabez stone's wealth doesn't seem to have any negative consequences um, the only thing that we do get as a caveat is that jabez stone isn't happy about it his family seems happy they are happy and contented um, everyone in town is excited about his good fortune. They want him to run for, for selectmen and they want him to, you know, run for state senate. Um, he's a big deal. He is successful and he's successful totally. Like, he's not, you know, a bad person masquerading as a good person. This is not a story about hypocrisy. This is a story about temptation at best. Um, so Jabez Stone isn't corrupted by his wealth. He's not made worse by his wealth, nor does he make other people's lives worse by his wealth. Notice that where Tom Walker, where Irving was very much emphasizing the danger of wealth itself, the fact that ill-gotten money is itself destructive and evil, Binet doesn't care. Wealth is wealth. It is of indifferent value to Binet. It is of indifferent value to Jabez Stone. Like, he even emphasizes this. Um, we get the devil coming back to check in on him, and he says, Well, Mr. Stone, you're a Hummer. It's a very pretty property you've got here, Mr. Stone. And Stone's response is, Well, some might favor it and others might not, said Jabez Stone, for he was a New Hampshire man. Again, we get this echo. He was a New Hampshire man. And as a consequence, he's not going to take wealth seriously. He's going to render it down to this neutrality. Some might favor it, others might not. He's going to pretend like it's not a big deal, even though he threw away his soul for it. This is another of the New Hampshire virtues, apparently. This understatedness, this humility, question mark? At the very least, this indifference to his fortune. So at the end of the day, we have to ask questions about this. They're not questions the text is giving us, though. Like, the text is telling us it is virtuous for him to be bloody-minded and to stand on his word even when he said something really dumb. It's also telling us that it is a virtue for him to reject the virtue of his riches. But also, there's no indication that the riches themselves are bad. Again, Jabez Stone isn't made worse by his riches. He's just still who he is, still a New Hampshire man. His corruption is completely a direct consequence of his bargain everything that is happening to him is good and everything that he's doing for his community is good the only bad part is that he had to sell his soul to the devil to do it but there are no consequences to selling your soul to the devil here besides the fact that he's going to come and claim it at some point it's a very direct relationship there's no theological agenda here Unlike Walker, unlike Goethe, unlike Marlowe, unlike Milton, 
the devil just exists as an obstacle, as a danger, as something trying to claim him. That's worth noting. Now, notice this is where we start to, you know, dicker about the deal here. Um, Stone tries to get out of his mortgage, as we call it, and he manages to win three months for himself or three more years for himself. He goes from like a seven year deal to a 10 year deal. Um, but in the process, we also get to see a little bit of the innards of the, the devil's operation here, much like we saw with Tom Walker when Old Scratch was like going around felling the trees for Deacon Peabody and, and Israel, what's his name? Um, now we see something similar. So um, it says, but Jabez Stone wasn't listening as this stranger is going on, like looking over his, his accounts, um, for he saw something else flutter out of the black pocketbook. It was something that looked like a moth, but it wasn't a moth. And as Jabez Stone stared at it, it seemed to speak to him in a small sort of piping voice, terrible, small and thin, but terrible human. Neighbor Stone, it squeaked. Neighbor Stone, help me, for God's sake, help me. But before Jabez Stone could stir hand or foot, the stranger whipped out a big bandana handkerchief, caught the creature in it just like a butterfly, and started tying up the ends of the bandana. Sorry for the interruption, he said. As I was saying, but Jabez Stone was shaking all over like a scared horse. That's Miser Stevens's voice, he said in a croak, and you've got him in your handkerchief. The stranger looked a little embarrassed. Yes, I really should have transferred him to the collecting box, he said with a simper, but there were some rather unusual specimens there, and I didn't want them crowded. Well, well, these little contretemps will occur. Notice the interaction here. So, apparently the devil is holding on to the soul of Miser Stevens, and we're not given much description about Miser Stevens. Again, the emphasis is not on hypocrisy here. He is a miser. We know this because he is called Miser Stevens, therefore he's evil, therefore that explains why he's, you know, in the devil's purse. But notice that the form that he takes is apparently of this little, like, moth thing. Um, looked like a moth, but it wasn't a moth, and yet he has this human voice. Notice, too, how the devil responds about this. Like, he just nabs it in a handkerchief really quick, says something about how he can't keep it in the collecting box, he's got, like, some weird contents in there, um, and he just goes about his business. But notice, too, that he gets a little fancy here. He says, well, well, these little contretemps will occur. It's a fr fancy French word, contretemps, meaning, like, against time, like, bad circumstances. These little whoopsies happen. Um... Now, notice that Jabez Stone doesn't pick up on this. I don't know what you mean by contraton, said Jabez Stone, but that was Miser Stevens' voice, and he ain't dead. You can't tell me he is. He was just as spry and mean as a woodchuck Tuesday. Notice the French qualification, the gentryness of the devil, doesn't go over well here. And in fact, Benet is kind of drawing attention to the fact that Stone doesn't know what he means, and the devil is putting on airs here. The Frenchness, the other nationality, the gentility of the devil is all viciousness as far as Benet is concerned. New Hampshire virtues are posed against foreign airs and behaviors. The devil is bad because he is genteel as it's presented here. But notice too what is going on with miser stevens um in the midst of life said the stranger kind of pious listen then a bell began to toll in the valley and jabez stone listened with the sweat running down his face for he knew it was told from miser stevens and that he was dead apparently the devil just collected miser stevens's soul jabez stone didn't even know that miser stevens was dead as he said he was healthy as a woodchuck on tuesday um but clearly this is how the devil does his business and then we get this really rather interesting question from Jabez Stone. Are they all as small as that? He asked hoarsely. Small, said the stranger. Oh, I see what you mean. Why, they vary. He measured Jabez Stone with his eyes and his teeth showed. Don't worry, Mr. Stone, he said. You'll go with a very good grade. I wouldn't trust you outside the collecting box. Now, a man like Daniel Webster, of course. Well, I'd imagine we'd have to build a special box for him and even at that, I imagine the wing spread would astonish you. He'd certainly be a prize. I wish we could see our way clear to him. But in your case, as I was saying, and they go on. 
Notice the question, are they as small as all that? Miser Stevens is just about a moth in size and shape. He's a wretched soul, not worth much. By contrast, the devil sizes up Javed Stone and says, yeah, you'll probably be pretty good. You will be considerably larger. I wouldn't trust you outside the collecting box. Um, so Jabez Stone is decent-sized soul, but immediately the devil goes on to talk about Daniel Webster's soul and how huge it was, and he would need a special box that he would be so big a soul that it would be quite the, the coup for the devil to overtake him and win that particular soul. That's what the, the sort of soul that the devil very much has his eye on. Now, this suggests, again... Like, Binet is saying, sort of inadvertently, I suspect, but fairly clearly all the same, that the souls are coming in different sizes, that some people just are better than others. And Daniel Webster, being a man of legendary proportions, you know, stars and stripes shoot out of his ass when he starts talking, like, that's fine. That he's an especially awesome person. Like, that's just who he is. You know, compared to Jabez Stone, he's just better than him. And Jabez Stone is better than Miser Stevens, who is, you know, wretched and small-minded and, you know, not worth having at all, basically, as far as the devil is concerned. That's weird. And we can definitely come back to that later, perhaps. Now, at any rate, they finally get their deal worked out Jabez Stone gets his three years, and he lives through his three years, and finally it comes time for him to get worried, and um, then he finally goes to Daniel Webster to hopefully get himself help for this situation. Um, and notice, again, we get some exaggeration about Daniel Webster's character, as well as some sort of insight into how he is perceived by our narrator. Um, so it says it was early in the morning when he got to Marshfield, but Daniel was up already, talking Latin to the farmhands and wrestling with the ram Goliath and trying out a new trotter and working up speeches to make against John C. Calhoun. But when he heard a New Hampshire man had come to see him, he dropped everything else he was doing, for that was Daniel's way. He gave Jabez Stone a breakfast that five men couldn't eat, went into the living history of every man and woman in cross corners, and finally asked him how he could serve him. Notice... The fact that Daniel Webster is a very busy man, he's like already up at the crack of dawn, he's talking Latin with the farmhands, he's fighting with the giant ram Goliath, he's making up speeches, but he drops everything when a fellow countryman comes in. Notice, again, the sort of virtuousness that is associated with this society of New Hampshire men. These people who are all the same kind of person, who are all bloody-minded and stubborn and friendly to each other, but suspicious of outsiders, who refuse to admit when things are going well or badly, that's the New Hampshire man that Benet insists upon here. And Daniel Webster is sort of a hero of the New Hampshire man. He is willing to drop everything and help any time that one of his fellow New Hampshire men need help. Um... So they dicker a bit, they talk over the case, and Jabez Stone explains that to Daniel Webster that like he sold his soul to the devil. Um, and we get this little line here where Daniel Webster accepts it. It's sort of a passing kind of line. I've got about 75 other things to do in the Missouri Compromise to straighten out, but I'll take your case, he says. For if two New Hampshire men aren't a match for the devil, we might as well give the country back to the Indians. Now, we talked quite a bit about the racism in Irving, namely that Irving was very, like, sympathetic and even a little, you know, like, it, compassionate towards black slaves especially. Like, Irving was a, a strong abolitionist and saw that, like, people were giving black people a, a bad rap, um, but was also kind of totally missing the mark as far as how Indian cultures worked. You'll see something similar from Benet here. Um, Webster mentions that, you know, the Indians didn't deserve the land, that we might as well give it back to them if we, if two Hampshire men aren't worth the devil here. Um, that's messy, and it's going to get messier as we go. There are going to be a couple of references to, you know, the, the Indians burning people at the stake, despite the lack of evidence there, um, as well as one particular native who's going to show up in the jury, who's kind of a bad deal um that's should give us pause here 
notice that Binet is all about America throughout this text. You know, as much as Daniel Webster is, is very much the hero here, like he is the one who can save Jabez Stone from the devil himself, um, J Daniel Webster is a hero because of his faith in the Union, because of his faith in America. He is a true American hero, a true New Hampshire man, like the sort of person that only America can produce. Um, and with that in mind, lines like this make it kind of clear that they are the appropriate people to be in this land. The emphasis in this line about how, you know, we might as well give it back to the Indians suggests that the reason why they took it from the Indians is because they're better. Like, flat out, no question, no judgment, better. Like, no room for, for a compromise here. The Indians didn't have the land, they didn't deserve the land, and so it's okay for Jabez Stone and Daniel Webster to control it. That's fine. Benet seems to support this. If we're getting a clearer picture of Benet's perspective here, it will only get even clearer as we go. Um, so obviously Daniel Webster joins Jabez Stone, they go back to Jabez Stone's house, and they wait for the devil. And again, we get some more of these emphases on like their, their camaraderie as New Hampshire men and Daniel Webster refusing to leave while there's a case open and a jug on the table. Like, apparently he is an awesome drinker amongst the many other talents that Daniel Webster has. But finally, we get the devil shows up. And just at that moment, there was a sharp rap on the door. Ah, said Daniel Webster very coolly. I thought your clock was a trifle slow, neighbor Stone. He stepped to the door and opened it. Come in, he said. And the stranger came in. Very dark and tall, he looked in the firelight. He was carrying a box under his arm, a black japanned box with little air holes in the lid. At the sight of the box, Jabez Stone gave a low cry and shrank into a corner of the room. Mr. Webster, I presume, said the stranger, very polite, but with his eyes glowing like a fox's deep in the woods. Attorney of record for Jabez Stone, said Daniel Webster, but his eyes were glowing too. Might I ask your name? I've gone by a good many, said the stranger carelessly. Perhaps Scratch will do for the evening. I'm often called that in these regions. Notice that Binet just takes the name directly from the Devil and Tom Walker here. He, this is the same old Scratch that we see in the Devil of Tom Walker. But notice how the priorities have shifted here. Remember that when we saw the Devil in the Devil and Tom Walker, he was just one of the guys. He was a woodcutter. He was a laborer, a blue-collar worker, as I emphasized. He looked like a black man, but was in fact a white dude covered in soot. He was, in short a citizen of New England just like any other citizen of New England. But notice that Binet is emphasizing the difference here. That where Jabez Stone and Daniel Webster are true New Hampshire men, you know, stubborn and, and you know, completely grounded in their land, hardworking, always, you know, honest to a fault and refusing to go back on their words, notice that the devil is presented here as an outsider as genteel, as wealthy. Um, he always comes up in his carriage, um, and yet it is not the same as Daniel Webster's awesome carriage with constellation and constitution, who apparently are so fast that they can overtake the wind. No, notice the devil drops those little French terms into his speech. He is way better spoken than either Jabez Stone or Daniel Webster, despite the fact that Daniel Webster is, of course, the famous orator. Um, the devil sets himself apart. He is different from these New Englanders. And Binet is stressing here that being a New Hampshire man is a virtue. The devil is not that. Now, the devil does make his protest. Like, Daniel Webster goes back and forth with the devil about the about the various technicalities that he tries to get Jabez Stone off on. And it's worth noticing what those technicalities actually are. Um, so as we see, with that the argument began and it went hot and heavy. At first Jabez Stone had a flicker of hope, but when he saw Daniel Webster being forced back at point after point, he just sat scrunched in the corner with his eyes on that japanned box, for there wasn't any doubt as to the deed or the signature. That was the worst of it. Notice, the deed and the signature seem perfectly legal. Like, Jabez Stone signed his, his soul over. That's pretty straightforward. Tough for Daniel Webster to argue against. 
Daniel Webster twisted and turned and thumped his fist on the table, but he couldn't get away from that. He offered to compromise the case. The stranger wouldn't hear of it. He pointed out the property had increased in value and state senators ought to be worth more. The stranger stuck to the letter of the law. He was a great lawyer, Daniel Webster, but we know who's the king of lawyers, as the good book tells us, and it seemed as if for the first time Daniel Webster had met his match. But he keeps going. Um, Mr. Stone is an American citizen, he says, and no American citizen may be forced into the service of a foreign prince. We fought England for that in 12 and we'll fight all hell for it again. And notice we get a speech much like the devils in The Devil and Tom Walker. Foreign? said the stranger, and who calls me a foreigner? Well, I never yet heard of the debt of your claiming American citizenship, said Daniel Webster with surprise. And who with better right, said the stranger, with one of his terrible smiles. When the first wrong was done to the first Indian, I was there. When the first slaver put out for the Congo, I stood on her deck. Am I not in your books and stories and beliefs from the first settlements on? Am I not spoken of still in every church in New England? Tis true, the North claims me for a Southerner and the South for a Northerner, but I am neither. I am merely an honest American like yourself and of the best descent. For, to tell the truth, Mr. Webster, though I don't like to boast of it, my name is older in this country than yours. Notice... Notice the similarities here, obviously. Like, again, this is just like that speech that we get from uh, the devil and the devil and Tom Walker, where he says, you know, I am the great patron of slave traders. I presided over the Salem witch trials. I was, you know, the, the, I was there when the Indians were sacrificing white men in the woods. As bad as the history is in Tom Walker, the emphasis is the devil is, like, routinely American. He makes the same speech here. When the first slave trader went to the Congo, I stood on its decks. When the first injustice was perpetrated against the first Indian, I was there. He emphasizes that difference about the South and the North to sort of clarify, as Tom Walker did, that difference between um, the, the, you know, perceived as a black man versus actually a white man. Here he's emphasizing, you know, the South hates the North, the North hates the South. They both assume the devil belongs in the other place. But in fact, he is routinely American. He is as sympathetic to the Southern causes as the Northern. Um, we get a similar speech, but notice that it's only skin deep this time. The descriptions of the devil always place him as separate from Stone and from Daniel Webster. He is not part of their community. He is not a New Hampshire man. Like, that is the central virtue opposed to the devil throughout this text. As much as the devil has his bit about, you know, the being an American, as much as Benet is also emphasizing, like, the evils that Americans have been engaged in, those evils are distanced in time. Those things do not carry over the distance. Remember, this story is written about a hundred years after the events that are supposedly being described here, and all of the things that the devil talks about here are things that are, at least in theory, fixed in the 1930s. There are no more injustices perpetrated around about the Indians, mostly because they've been primarily exterminated. Slavery is over. We beat that. Hooray! The whole South versus North fight, the whole Civil War is over and done with. We accomplish that too. Everything the devil claims to, Americans of the 1930s would consider them successfully over, successfully beaten. There's no hint of the racism that Irving points out, where the devil might look black. Because in the 30s, well, we're still dealing with racism. That's still a problem. That's still something that Americans haven't overcome. It's still something that people are upset about. The devil, as much as he seems to be an American here, is an American distanced from the readers that Binet has in mind. This, the devil of the devil and Tom Walker, the devil that Irving makes, is meant to absolutely take New Englanders to task for what they are doing at that moment. Irving is crying out to them, don't lend money on interest. Don't persecute Quakers and Anabaptists. Don't support the slave trade. Benet, on the other hand, distances his devil far enough back in time that it's not an attack on anyone at this point. Any American reading this story at the time that it was published in the 30s is not going to feel vindicated. They're not going to feel like, 
you know, oh no, I've got to stop, you know, hating Southerners. No, we're done with that. Or, oh no, I've got to stop supporting the tr slave trade. No, the slave trade hasn't been a thing in decades. Binet is writing a story that is safe, that is comfortable, that is not challenging people. Instead, anyone listening to the story knows the devil is the devil, not because of what he is doing, but rather how he appears. Not because of the bad things that are going on in their day-to-day -day lives, but because of the bad things that everyone has already become better than. No one listening to this story is going to say to themselves, maybe I should change my behavior. Irving is talking to me, or Binet is talking to me. Binet is not charging anyone here. Binet is saying, isn't it great that we've overcome all of the bad things that Americans used to do? Uh, Binet is saying, we New Hampshire men, we Americans are better than we used to be. We've come so far. We've accomplished so much. And never mind anything that is left to be accomplished. All of the great things that this text talks about, this preservation of the Union especially, is in the past. It's been and done. Binet is not trying to inspire fear or remorse or, you know, a reevaluation of one's own morality. He's just, he intends to inspire patriotism. Look at how great America is. Look at how much we've done. Look at how awesome we are. Look at all the things that we've fixed about our former selves. Look at all the bad people of the past and look at all the good people of the present. That's what Binet is emphasizing. Now, Daniel Webster keeps fighting back. He says, I stand on the Constitution. I demand a trial for my client. And that's where things get weird. So we get a trial. And we get a trial of American citizens for this American citizen, as per Daniel Webster's request. But notice who our trial includes. If Jabez Stone had been sick with terror before, he was blind with terror now. For here was Walter Butler, the loyalist, who spread fire and horror through the Mohawk Valley in the times of the Revolution. And there was Simon Gerty, the renegade, who saw white men burned at the stake and whooped with the Indians to see them burn. His eyes were green like a catamount, and the stains on his hunting shirt did not come from the blood of the deer. King Philip was there, wild and proud as he had been in life, with the great gash in his head that gave him his death wound, and cruel Governor Dale, who broke men on the wheel. There was Morton of Marymount, who so vexed the Plymouth colony with his flushed, loose, handsome face and his hate of the godly. There was Teach, the bloody pirate, with his black beard curling on his breast. The Reverend John Smeet, with his strangler's hands and his Geneva gown, walked as daintily as he had to the gallows. The red print of the rope was still around his neck, but he carried a perfumed handkerchief in one hand. One and all, they came into the room with the fires of hell still upon them, and the stranger named their names and their deeds as they came, till the tale of twelve was told. Yet the stranger had told the truth. They had all played a part in America. The jury are monsters, like all the worst people from the colonial era of the United States. We have Walter Butler, the loyalist who sold out the revolutionaries. We have, you know, Simon Gertie, the, the murderer who teamed up with the Indians to kill, quote, innocent colonists. We have Morton of Marymount and his whole serial killing business. And we have Edward Teach, who you probably better know as Blackbeard the Pirate. All of them Americans, all of them terrible people and in the devil's employ. All of them here from hell visiting to pass sentence. And of course, who do we get for the judge but Judge Hathorne himself, the one who presided at the Salem Witch Trials and never apologized for the verdict he gave condemning those so-called witches to death. The same Hathorne who we talked about with Tom Walker being a, an ancestor of Nathaniel Hawthorne, that general Judge Hathorne, who has no interest in justice as an actual instrument of the law, like, he is just here to carry out the devil's will. Um, and notice we even get, like, Daniel Webster makes a sly comment about, like, well, what about Benedict Arnold? And apparently Benedict Arnold is, like, busy on other business. Um, like, here is a rogues gallery of American founders, like, the worst Americans who have lived up until this point, all dead, all damned, 
all within the devil's employ, all brought to weigh in on this trial. Um, and it's not a fair trial either. Like, as obviously, the, the devil stacks the box with his own, you know, supporters. He stacks the judge by picking Gen Judge Hathorne. He also very much, like, skews the trial. Every time that Daniel Webster objects, his objection is shut down. Um, every time that the devil objects, it is, it is sustained by, Gen by Judge Hathorne. So it's obviously not a fair trial. And notice how Dan, this passage that where Daniel Webster responds. It got to Daniel in the end, and he began to heat, like iron in the forge. When he got up to speak, he was going to flay that stranger with every trick known to the law, and the judge and jury too. He didn't care if it was contempt of court or what would happen to him for it. He didn't care anymore what happened to Jabez Stone. He just got madder and madder, thinking of what he'd say. And yet, curiously enough, the more he thought about it, the less he was able to arrange his speech in his mind. Till, finally, it was time for him to get up on his feet, and he did so, all ready to bust out with lightnings and denunciations. But before he started, he looked over the judge and jury for a moment, such being his custom. And he noticed the glitter in their eyes was twice as strong as before, and they all leaned forward, like hounds, just before they get the fox they looked. And the blue mist of evil in the room thickened as he watched them. Then he saw what he'd been about to do. And he wiped his forehead as a man might who just escaped falling into a pit in the dark. Notice this isn't just about Jabez Stone. Remember, we were told by the devil a few passages ago that he is looking for a soul as great as Daniel Webster's. And he even brings that fancy japanned box, the custom-made box. Remember, he told Jabez Stone that Jabez Stone's soul he wouldn't trust out of the collection box, but his collection box he carries around with him normally. Now he's got this special box, and you can bet it's not for Jabez Stone. As Daniel Webster realizes in the very next line, for it was him they'd come for, not only Jabez Stone. If he had succumbed to that temptation, if Daniel Webster had stood up and thrown every invective he could come up with, played every dirty legal trick he could think of, the devil would have held him in contempt of court and would undoubtedly have, according to the rules of law, damned him as well. He would have gone away with two souls, not one. But Daniel Webster catches himself in time. And notice the speech he makes instead because that's kind of the key to how this works. He started off in a low voice, though you could hear every word. They say he could call in the harps of the blessed when he chose, and this was just as simple and easy as a man could talk. But he didn't start out by condemning or reviling. He was talking about the things that make a country a country and a man a man. They began with the simple things that everybody's known and felt, the freshness of a fine morning when you're young, and the taste of food when you're hungry, and the new day that's every day when you're a child. He took them up, and he turned them in his hands. There were good things for any man, but without freedom, they sickened. And when he talked to those enslaved and the sorrows of slavery, his voice got like a big bell. He talked of the early days of America and the man, men who had made those days. It wasn't a spread eagle speech, but he made you see it. He admitted all the wrong that had ever been done, but he showed how, out of the wrong and the right, the suffering and the starvations, something new had come. And everybody had played a part in it even the traitors. Then he turned to Jabez Stone and showed him as he was, an ordinary man who'd had hard luck and wanted to change it. And because he'd wanted to change it, now he was going to be punished for all eternity. And yet there was good in Jabez Stone, and he showed that good. He was hard and mean in some ways, but he was a man. There was sadness in being a man, but it was a proud thing too, and he showed what the pride of it was till you couldn't help feeling it. Yes, even in hell, if a man was a man, you'd know it. And he wasn't pleading it for any more, for any one person anymore, though his voice rang like an organ. He was telling the story and the failures and the endless journey of mankind. They got tricked and trapped and bamboozled, but it was a great journey. And no demon that was ever foaled could know the inwardness of it. It took a man to do that. Notice that Daniel Webster appeals to the jury's humanity here. At the end of the day, yes, they are the worst men in the history of America, and yet Daniel Webster knows they are still men. He succeeds in his speech ultimately because he makes them feel like men. Like This is emphasized in the first paragraph in section 5, for the glitter was gone from the eyes of judge and jury, and for the moment they were men again and knew they were men. 
And when the jury, in fact, hands down the evidence, they say, perhaps it is not strictly in accordance with the evidence, he said, but even the damned may salute the eloquence of Mr. Webster. Notice what is being emphasized here. Notice what Binet is stressing. He is saying that Webster and Stone and all these horrible men of the jury and even Judge Hathorne himself share in common humanity and Americanism. They are all, to the last, men and American men at that. And Daniel Webster's speech emphasizes this as well, the fact that even the traitors contributed. Everybody had played a part in it, even the traitors. America is what it is as much for the work of guys like Daniel Webster with his fancy oratory, as well as guys like Jabez Stone who just worked their butts off, as well as guys like Blackbeard who did in fact kill people and made the place, made the situation worse, but did it in a distinctly American way. Daniel Webster and Binet are stressing that being American redeems them all. It transcends the value of damnation. The fact that these men are damned does not remove them so far from the American experience that Daniel Webster can't bring them back. Again, this is a story determined to make us feel patriotic. And even at the very end, when Daniel Webster like captures the devil and demands, makes all these demands from them, even down to the very last line, but they say that whenever the devil comes near Marshfield, even now he gives it a wide berth and he hasn't been seen in the state of New Hampshire from this day, from that day to this. I'm not talking about Massachusetts or Vermont. Notice the emphasis here on this final line, that I'm not talking about Massachusetts or Vermont. This is something unique to New Hampshire men. And it is something unique to Americans. Benet is basically preaching nationalism here. And notice just the very structure here, that at the end of the day, the devil is beaten by Daniel Webster. We have never seen this before. Like, sure, we had the story of Goethe's Faust, where, like, Goethe and Mephistopheles are wrestling against one each other, and then finally, like, after all of Faust Part 1 and all of Faust Part 2, Goethe's Faust is saved. But he's not saved by his own ingenuity or by his own accomplishments. He's not saved by the German spirit. He's not saved by, like, you know, his wild intelligence or even his own relentless goodness. He's saved because Beatrice loves him. Despite the fact that he screwed it all up, she cares, and that's enough to get him out of his situation. That's the virtue that Goethe is preaching. But notice the virtue here. The devil is beaten because Daniel Webster is just so goddamn American awesome. Stars and stripes shooting out of his ass as he's talking about all of this fancy nonsense about, you know, the, the dew in the morning and the, the food when you're hungry and sure, whatever. Binet is saying that being an American makes you more powerful than the devil. If two New Hampshiremen aren't more than a match for the devil, Daniel said, we might as well give this land back to the Indians. Notice what this is emphasizing. Like, look at how far we've come from Dante's devil down in the ninth circle of hell, chewing on the bodies of Judas and Brutus. Like, the mammoth devil who's like the size of mountains stacked on top of each other, whose wings beat his tears into a frozen lake. Like, this devil gets shredded by Daniel Webster because he lacks humanity because he is not American enough, because he lacks the experience of working the land and being an asshole. That's ultimately what Daniel Webster is saying and what Binet is saying. Binet is saying our country is so star-spangled awesome that it is more than a match for the greatest terror of Christendom. The devil is no match for American ingenuity, American stubbornness, New Hampshire virtue. And notice that it is men, too. Like, there's definitely a feminist reading to be had here, which I unfortunately do not have time for. But notice that all the virtues that are stressed here are masculine virtues. Masculine stubbornness. Masculine hardworkingness. Masculine experience. That's the 
man's experience how it's a man is a man and even that transcends being damned and being bought off by the devil the devil loses because america is awesome and this is pretty warped it is a far cry from what irving was saying with tom walker like you would never find this kind of patriotism in irving's work Remember, Tom Walker is very much in line with these sort of opportunists of America, which Irving is quick to condemn. But Binet looks at Americanism and says, yep, all good, every bit of it. The good and the bad, the murderers and the saints, and everyone in between, all of it America, all of it good, all of it totally more than a match for the devil. Christianity has lost a lot of power. That's obvious it's perhaps no more obvious than when you start presenting the devil as though regular human beings can start beating him in competitions like this. The devil is a weakling at this point, in short. He is not up to Daniel Webster's oratory or even Jabez Stone's allies. This is pride, in short. And we talked a little bit last time about like how the artists of the 20th century were sort of responding to propaganda. I suspect this story comes dangerously close to being actual propaganda. Like it's not propaganda in the sense that, you know, it's going to talk about how like the Germans are awful and we should go out and like kill them by the bucket load. Like that's that's not in here. But there are hints of it in here. Like the devil's French terms. Or the fact that, you know, it's not Massachusetts or Vermont, it's just in New Hampshire. There's this suggestion of exclusiveness here. Of this unification by these common attributes that are fuzzy. And not really all that admirable at the end of the day. Like, Jabez Stone's stubbornness is what gets him in this pickle in the first place. But it's also, according to Binet, what saves him. That, that New England unification, that, you know, men are men, ultimately is what gets him out of the situation. That's troubling. That's something we should be cautious of. And it's definitely something new in the 20th century. It is not nearly this clear at any time beforehand. I suspect Benet did not learn the lesson that Irving wanted to teach. That as much as Benet is a fan of the devil and Tom Walker, he totally missed the point. Irving was very much stressing that America has problems. There are hypocrites here. What we praise is different from what is virtuous about us. But for Benet, it's all one and the same. Benet is just saying, damn, America is awesome. And America's stories are awesome. And America's heroes are awesome. And America's virtues are awesome. And that's all there is to it. But it's more than that. This pride is the same national pride that gets us into World War I and gets us into World War II. And I say that not just in terms of America, but it's this nationalism that causes all the central powers to be fighting against all the allied powers and for all these endless numbers of bodies to be you know, buried in the various cemeteries across the European continent. And Benet missed that too. This story was written in 1937. He should know better. But he doesn't. And in five years, we're going to do it all again. It's this sort of attitude that brings about these wars. And I wanted to show you a glimpse of what that looks like. Of how nationalism ultimately can redound to really destructive ends. If there is something great about America, it's not the fact that we are American. It is something more than that something underlying our americanism something that our americanism is itself founded on i stressed way back in our enlightenment lecture that the american constitution is sort of like the final fruit of the enlightenment this hyper rationality realized in this document that governs an entire nation if there's something valuable about that document about that hyper rationality about that belief that humans are created equal and that all of them should have certain rights as a consequence of just being human, that's good. And some of that is in here. That common humanity theme 
is good. But when you make it exclusive, when you say just New Hampshire men, not Massachusetts or Vermont, just America and not the French or the Germans, that's where it gets dangerous. Many of our artists have been sort of exploring the idea of what it means to be human, and they should. It's been a valuable look, and it's developed dramatically since the Renaissance, back when, you know, first the painters were first allowed and interested and encouraged to paint the human form and understand humans as a source of their own beauty, separate from religion in many cases. That separation has gotten to the point that now humans are greater than religion. Humility is no longer a virtue. Pride is a virtue. That may have gone too far. So when you read this, I hope that it was occasionally unnerving. Exciting, sure, fun to read, absolutely. Resist what Binet is doing as far as his patriotic tendencies, though. Patriotism should be grounded in something more than just history, common identity, a name. It should be rooted in what we believe and what we do. Not exactly sure how much of the real pride is on display here. The things that we can really be proud of as Americans. That's definitely not as clear. Now, we're going to be switching gears after this. We're going to jump into The Master and Margarita. That's how we're going to be finishing out the semester. We're going to read that. I'm going to record a bunch of lectures about The Master and Margarita, and you will only be required to listen to some of them for the class. Um, I am hoping to do the entire book, just in case you know you want to follow along with the entire book, because it's a great book, and it's awesome, and I love it, and I'm really looking forward to recording lectures about it and rereading it again, and just you know hanging out in that world for a while. Um, but... Keep this in mind as we go forward, because this is kind of the natural endpoint of our sort of class readings. Here we have come all the way from the Renaissance, read all these stories about devils and, you know, Fausts and so on. Now we have come to the point that we've lost so much of our education that these artists have been teaching us. We have lost so much of the humility that Marlowe and Goethe and Dante and Milton and Byron and everyone had emphasized. Now we're just so full of ourselves that Daniel Webster can take out the devil. We've kind of come full circle here. Um, Bulgakov will complicate things, but keep in mind this is our arc. This is where we've been and pretty close to what we are now.